Oh my goodness, Frank, can you believe it? Finally, Lightning Talk Week on Merge Conflict. I can't believe we made it to episode 60. It's a small miracle. Keep on going. (laughs) We did. We made it. And I thought, you know, once we hit 50, 52, it'd be game over, but no. And for listeners that don't know, this is essentially every time I get on Zencaster with Frank, he goes, is it a multiple of 10 yet? Is it a multiple? Because we're just go get, we get so excited about these lightning talks because they were a unique concept we came up with really early on, which was like saying, hey, let's like just change up the format every once in a while. Instead of talking about one huge topic for, you know, 30, 40 minutes, let's talk about six different topics, five minutes each. So essentially lightning talks that we even do at our user groups, but in podcast form, I love lightning talks. They're my favorite. (laughs) Yeah, it ups the pressure and it lets us pick topics that we don't think we can actually talk about for 30 minutes Um, or or even just silly topics. We have a few silly ones this week, but we'll see how it goes. Yeah, I love it. All right, you ready to do this? I, I'm super excited Ooh, to get into yeah. it. Yeah, I feel like I should be a pro. Number, like, what is this, number five or six? Off by one always, but okay. Six. I'll get nervous. Yes. All right, let's do it. All right, countdown in three, two, one. All right, in not just six minutes, we have to cover this five minutes, I guess, but we have to cover all of C Sharp 8. Did you know that C Sharp 8 was a thing? <laughs> no, I didn't until this morning when I saw, uh, what, it was on Twitter and Mads Torgensen had a video on Channel 9 uh, showing off, I guess, what, some proposed features because I think it's a bit early in the cycle, but whatever. It's a cool video with Mads. I'm excited to see it. Yes, he calls it a sneak peek of uh, upcoming C-Sharp 8 proposals, ideas, and it was all on a whiteboard, which was pretty cool. Seth was on there <laughs> talking <laughs> <Nerds>. about it. <laughs> And uh, yeah, th- I mean, these were some of these are ones that I've heard about that maybe I've talked about that were proposals for C Sharp 7 that didn't make it. But um, there are f- three things specifically that he talked about, I would say in a half an hour or so, maybe four things. But I think really we can talk about three and probably one that you and I have talked the most about, which happens to be nullable reference types. <laughs> Yeah, uh, this is, uh, you, you mentioned uh, paying attention to C-Sharp 7. Now that Roslyn's open source and Microsoft's doing everything in the open now, we do actually get to see sneak, sneak, sneak peeks of all this kind of stuff. So some of these are we've seen in the past, but it's great to see them talking about it for C-Sharp 8 because they miss C-Sharp 7. And yeah, the big one is, at least for me, nullable. So if you're not a programmer out there, just know that we have these things, variables, and every so often there can be nothing in a variable and it causes havoc throughout the entire system because you expect something there and then there's nothing there. And the worst part is we programmers don't help ourselves. We're constantly throwing null left and right and returning null. And we're, we're so mean to each other. So it'd be so nice to have uh, some language support to help you figure out, is this variable guaranteed not to be null or does it have or can it be null? I'm excited for that. Yeah, I think, you know, how many times in our source code do we have if this thing equals null or string is empty or null? And you're just like, oh, over <laughs> It's half over the reason again. I use F sharp because for the most part, they just said there's nothing can be null. And well, yeah. solve that problem that way. But the truth is when your interface is with something like C sharp, then you do get nulls and you have to do, deal with them still. So yeah, yeah great. I, I hope it comes along nicely, this feature. 
Yeah, I definitely like the idea of nullable features. And and what's actually interesting is that there's proposals on the C-sharp lang.net for 7. Did you know there's a 7.1 C-sharp? Did you know about that? No, I didn't. <laughs> yeah, so By the way, People I mean, have gone I know we're going to get semantic versioning of oh, this world. <laughs> this one, we're going to get a little bit off track, but there's four features in C-sharp 7.1, which is async main, default expressions, infer tuple names, and pattern matching with generics. Wow. Did you know that? Yeah, it sounds like features that just miss C-sharp 7. Sounds like a perfect dot one release. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, nullable types to me are pretty huge because it can, I don't know if it's a compiler time change that they're going to have to do or where it will fit because it's very interesting because we have nullable types, right? And yeah. then you have strings, which are like not reference types, right? They're reference types. Oh, they're reference types, but they're not integers they're, they're they're immutable is the difference basically yeah, in 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 the dot net world you have two kinds of types reference types and value types all your primitive types are value types and so they can't be null because primitives can't be null and so we invented nullable to spread the disease of null throughout all of our code <laughs> yeah so hopefully this thing comes out and does it and it's awesome uh, and great. Uh, we'll see. Cause I think it would clean up APIs a lot and then just those stupid null reference exceptions. And I mean, just throwing argument null exceptions, like hopefully those just go away because if you it's can't pass me point. null, guess what? I'm happy. It's the whole point of a programming language is to catch your errors. So yeah. I'm, I'm all for this kind of stuff. But no, there's, did... there's other things coming. Uh, mm-hmm. A big one for me, uh, I'm, I'm going to skip over one async streams, but a big one for me is um, extensions everywhere, every extension, everything. Does this mean we finally get extension properties in C Sharp? I think so. Maybe it could be. It could be a thing that we're into. I'm not positive. Uh, um, I thought you saw the video. <laughs> I watched it, but then I was kind of like, eh, after default interface implementations, I kind of was like, eh, whatever. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, we'll talk about those then. What, tell me about these default interfaces. Well, these ones are interesting because they kind of come from a world of, I don't know, Java, maybe Objective-C in a way. I mean, the problem I think that they were trying to solve with default interface implementations is that if you have an interface and if you change it, then you kind of break every other interface that's out there. But what you could do is then you could have a default implementation of that interface, kind of like an, and then everything else becomes optional or it becomes optional essentially to override in a way. I think of it kind of like a, a, a virtual where like, hey, this base thing exists and then you could override it. So if you add a new feature, onto an interface or new method, you could have a default implementation for that, that every actual implementation uses. Yeah. Uh, It's weird. Um, You know, interfaces don't normally fit the whole object-oriented model. Like there's so many different ways to think about object-oriented programming. And uh, they've always been like, they're weird abstract base classes, right? That's kind of what they are. The neat thing about interfaces, though, is you can implement multiple interfaces. So now that we have interfaces that can actually contain method definitions, now we're getting a weird form of multi multiple inheritance. So yeah. this is actually a crazy feature that really expands the object-oriented vocabulary of all .NET programs. It's going to be really interesting to see how people use it. It will be, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm super interested in it because 
just from iOS kind of has protocols with optionals and required stuff. And I don't know, it's crazy, but we're out of time already on C sharp eight. <laughs> <laughs> that was so, a bad start. Let's, we're doing let's go on to something out. It's okay. Well, this question came from Twitter actually that I wanted to cover because we talk about sharing code and creating new libraries and doing this stuff all the time. And someone on Twitter just this morning actually tweeted to me and they said, Hey, I'm really confused on just like what library do I create? Do I create a .NET framework? Do I create a .NET core project? Do I create a core library inside a framework project? Do I create a .NET standard library? Do I create a shared project? What do I do and what are these things? Um, oh, well, this is an easy one. Ah, thank God we took too much time with C Sharp 8. So your default here is you create a .NET standard library. That's uh, the world we've moved to. If you can get away with it, do a .NET Standard 1 library. Otherwise, just do a .NET Standard 2 library. It gives you pretty much everything that's already in the framework. That's pretty much the case if you're going to write a library that you want to give to other people. If you're writing your own library that's only going to be used on one platform, who cares? Just code it for that platform and don't stress you know, about it. Eventually, you can move it into .NET Standard. Yeah, I think if you were... Essentially, think of it as... You know, there's obviously project types. So like I'm going to create a .NET, you know, oh, a, a, well. I'm going to create a WPF project, right? Which is running on .NET framework, or I'm going to create a .NET core project. Those are projects just like iOS or Android. Those are the deployment targets. And those projects, just like iOS, Android, WPF, .NET core, they have a specific version of, of that operating system that it's targeting. Like in iOS, I can say, hey, I want to target and I want to compile against you know, SDK iOS 10 or whatever, right? That's what I have installed. So I don't get access to the new ones, uh, the new APIs or just on Android. If I compile against you know, KitKat, I'm not, not going to get like any new versions. That's the flavor of Android. I'm still targeting it, right? Then the libraries, like exactly what you said, Frank, are what is going to be consumed by those projects. Now, if I want multiple projects and diff different types of projects to share similar code, then I create a .NET standard library. The .NET standard libraries are libraries that are have a standard set of APIs that any .NET app can essentially consume. But often, you know, I need um, to create a library just for my Android application that's using Android-specific APIs, and that's the key, right? Why would you create a .NET Core library or an Android library? Well, you would create it because you're create you're going to be using APIs of that platform that don't exist in normal .NET or the .NET standard. I think that's kind of the key. Does does that make sense, Frank? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's Brushed pretty it. much how I go. Um, it's uh, one library contains all my code that can be shared between the apps. Each app has just a native platform project for itself being the app. And that's pretty much all you need. <laughs> yeah, I think we just, you know, I think I watched a uh, Hanselman try to explain this and like it took him like, you know, five, 10 minutes. We just crushed it in like a minute. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I think we need a diagram or something, though. But yeah, life has gotten a lot simpler for us. Um, yeah, ideally, just remember projects are projects with specific platform APIs. Libraries are libraries and a .NET standard library is for everyone, essentially. Yeah, there's for everyone. I still like shared projects. <laughs> yeah, uh, and I, I, you know, I, I feel like we could take a second to say, uh, please, everyone, if you do have a NuGet library out there and you're still targeting .NET, please, for the love of God, switch it over to .NET standard. <laughs> there's uh, still quite a few libraries out there on NuGet that I wish had converted already because I want to use them in weird and awkward places where people didn't mean for them to be used, but I'm going to put them there anyway, and I yeah. need them to be .NET standard. So 
Yeah. Remember, you owe it to everyone. <laughs> Get out there. Take the time. It, it's all supported. And, and the biggest thing, too, is I think when so .NET Standard and .NET Core 2 just came out, and with that, I believe they scan NuGet, and there's 80% of the actual libraries out there could actually be a .NET Standard 2.0 library. That. 100%, yeah. Because most libraries are .NET libraries, and .NET, you know, they copied it. That's what .NET Standard 2 is. <laughs> yeah. Since we have 30 seconds, here's a quick pro tip. If you're creating an app, select the highest version of .NET Standard because you want all the APIs as, you know, whatever platform support it. So 2.0, basically, you know, get iOS, Android, and UWP kind of win it this fall or whatever. And then yeah, if you're absolutely. a library creator, create the lowest version that you possibly can if your APIs fit in there. So whether it's a 1.0 or 1.6, you're pretty much good. Gotcha. Yeah, you can't flat out recommend 2.0 yet because the tooling's still catching up a tiny bit. But so close. Yeah, so we're, close. we're so close. <laughs> Well, talking about things catching up, but on Bumping Android, we finally have bottom navigation. And I wrote a blog post on this. And uh, to me, it was worth you giggling and laughing at me about <laughs> as a topic. Well, it took me a while to comprehend it at first, because I think you you helped me. What you actually mean to say is tabs at the bottom, but we don't call them tabs because tabs in Android go at the top. So these got a special name, uh, bottom navigation. And uh, you sent me something to look at for a screenshot. And oh, they look exactly like iOS <laughs> tabs. Yeah. But whatever, you know, a phone's a phone. There's so many, only so many places, so many edges on it. There's four, you know, <laughs> so you can only put things in so many places. Yeah. And, you know, I think we talked a lot about designing for the platform. And even when I was building the Xamarin Evolve conference application, it was very clear that on iOS, I was going to have tabs. I was going to have a navigation drawer on um, Android and then kind of a very similar the flyout navigation on, on UWP because a lot of people ask me about navigation and design, and we've gotten questions on Twitter talking about designing for the platforms. And to me, it was always blasphemy to put tabs on the bottom on Android because they go on uh -huh. the top. They just do. <laughs> just like just like Frank, imagine if yes. someone tried to put tabs on the top on iOS. Wouldn't you be upset? Mm, my IDE actually has top tabs. Well, you know. I mean. <laughs> gotcha there. <laughs> but in general, yes. But I was just mimicking other IDEs. <laughs> mm -hmm. But as your main top-level navigation. For sure. Tabs yeah. go at the bottom. Yes, uh, I, I, I totally buy this argument. Yes, designing for the platform. So do you have mixed feelings now? Now that Google has expanded the definition of the platform? It's actually really tricky because I think every implementation that I see they actually use a mixture of navigation drawer with bottom tabs and the bottom navigation view, the bottom tabs, if you will, are saying these are the most important sections of your application. Um, oh, okay. So you can kind of combine them because, you know, you kind of run into that problem on iOS, which is, oh, I have more than five sections of my application. And then one, you should probably rethink your application. But then yeah. like, do I put that dot dot more button and then have like a list view of things like... Um, that's what we did on the Evolve app, right? Um, so I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm okay with them. I, I, whatever they're in the official Android support design library, so everyone can use them. So they're just kind of out there. So that's kind of nice, and it's very easy to implement. Like if you're already using top tabs or you're using the navigation drawer, it's basically one to one. Like it, it's so simple to change between these two different mechanisms that I don't know, whatever works best for you or whatever your designer wants, I guess. <laughs> What's the uh, Xamarin form story? Uh, will they uh, support it? 
working on it, I guess. <laughs> now it's hard because when you think of tabs, a tabbed page, well, yeah, well, they, kind they of, want to do the old native definition, not a navigation page. Yeah. And it's, and it's actually really different because uh, tabs on Android are, are essentially, if you have like two sections of your, they even say like, Hey, if you have two sections of your app, then you should have top tabs. If you have three to five bottom tabs, if you have more fly out navigation, mm-hmm. you know, so it's yeah. kind of like, well, I was actually, <laughs> I was praying a little that this was the end of the fly out navigation, but no, huh? No, no, no. Keep that baby. Oh, hamburgers and flyouts the rest of our lives. <laughs> yeah. And there's different well, use cases for each of them. So I think they'll do a, a, they can, they can definitely implement it because it's in the support design library, which they already bring in. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. It's it's still exciting to see UIs change, though. I think um, you know when iOS uh, seven came out, we were all like, "Oh, cool, a whole new UI." But now it's been you know four years, and we've been using essentially the same UI. It's changed a little bit, but you know tabs haven't moved. <laughs> you know, no, nothing fundamental has moved. So it's always still exciting to see like other people moving and see what directions they're going. Even if yeah, it is wait. towards iOS, <laughs> iOS 11 top tabs, iOS 12 top tabs. <laughs> no way. That's what I'm going to say the name of this episode. iOS 12, happen. give us top tabs. Um, it's actually always been interesting. Top tabs on iOS have always been segmented controls, kind of, you know? To yeah, the th- that's it. Um, that's how you switch between different modes of your app, but it gets confusing. You don't mix that with tabs. It's one or the other in general. Well, you know, talking about controls... There's a great company out there that has all sorts of controls for any of your applications, whether they're built with Xamarin, whether they're ASP.NET, whether they're Kendo UI, whether they're, I don't know, basically anything, WPF, UWP, you need a chart, you need a graph, you need a calendar, you need an advanced list view, you need a slide out navigation, you need advanced alerts, you name it, Telerik and Telerik UI has you covered. With one simple cross-platform API, for iOS, Android, and Xamarin forms, you can drag and drop basically in any single control that you need, whether it's a calendar control, advanced list views, uh, data forms, side navigation. They have controls that will make your applications shine. They're absolutely stunning. And all Merge Conflict uh, listeners can actually get a free trial of using Telerik UI for Xamarin by going to Telerik.com slash Merge Conflict. You can learn all about the wonderful, amazing controls that are built right into Telerik UI for Xamarin, download the packages, and get up and running in mere moments. Make your applications shine and build beautiful cross-platform apps with Telerik UI for Xamarin. And thanks to Telerik for sponsoring Merge Conflict. Yeah, thank you, Telerik. Yeah, I love, love it. I... I have my next topic. Uh, This is one I wanted because I actually wanted to ask you a question. But first, the story. The story is I was getting super frustrated with the NuGet um, website. (laughs) It wasn't telling me the information I wanted to know. So I decided I'm just going to write my own new front end to NuGet because I know how the API works and I'm just going to write a whole new NuGet.org, you know, better, faster, stronger. Um, And I did that, and I got some features in that I really liked, but then I'm like, oh yeah, I don't want to run a server. (laughs) I don't actually want to host any of this stuff. (laughs) And so I thought it was very funny this morning. I saw um, that you just recently did a video on, what are we calling them these days? Nano services or serverless computing. I like to think of it as easy servers, (laughs) servers I don't have to think about. Easy servers, yeah. Uh, So... Yeah. So do you, do you want to 
say uh, what your video was about and are, is the world ready for these things? Um, Am I ready? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, you know, so I have the Xamarin show over on channel nine and I had um, Donna come on talking about Azure Functions essentially, which is our serverless compute here at Microsoft. And serverless compute has always intrigued me. So uh, Amazon had Lambda, which is AWS's version of this. And I think for a long time, it only ran JavaScript or something like that. And then we came along and we said, hey, we have all these servers. And if you think about the normal developer workflow, well, you create a web API, you create some web server, and then it's always up and kind of running or it has a spin up and it has a spin down. And you're kind of paying for that server to be on always, which can get very expensive. And often you just want to do one really little thing um, on occasion. And the different kind of thought processes is like, hey, most likely these things are reacting to events. So what if we simplified the type of event that you could orchestrate? So like I uploaded something to blob storage, or I made an HTTP request, or I got a, a GitHub uh, hook request, or I got a, um, um, I don't know, I got a, like a photo upload, or I got a, um, I don't know, any event. Basically. Oh, all these things. Yeah. And then I did something. I mean, IoT stuff. Yeah. <laughs> And then I did something, right? Like I want to do something with that. And the cool thing is if you like upload something to blob storage, you could input something and output something. So it's like, hey, I'm going to input something. Maybe it's some properties on the HTTP request and I'm going to output something to a SQL database, right? And the cool thing about Azure Functions is that it supports all sorts of different programming languages, C Sharp, F Sharp, JavaScript, uh, Java, all these different things. And the unique part here is not only that, but that it also is you only pay for your consumption. So if your nano little tiny service runs for um, 0.001 second, you pay Microsoft for 0.001 second of time, which is like 0.00000001 pennies, which is kind of cool. Okay, all that sounds good. Yeah. Let me uh, ask a few questions. Can I can I host a web page with one of these? Can a function return HTML and act like a web server? Uh, it definitely could. I don't know if that's the exact purpose, but it could. Yes. <laughs> Return anything. Okay. Yes. And then, um, sorry, I got a little confused during your um, blob storage. So what what is the normal, like, what if I do want to save some state or save some data? What What is the Microsoft recommended way to save data with these things? Well, it kind of depends. You can input and output anything. Mm -hmm. So you are, there's kind of connectors that you can create. And by default, we have a bunch of connectors. So maybe an output is an email or it's an image blob to disk. So a common scenario is I upload an image image to blob storage and then the trigger gets immediately called via the queue so the queue's like hey i got a new image do you want to do something with this and then maybe in my azure function my actual logic would be some image resizing code and then the image resizing code would have some outputs and i can say output three different sizes of images which will then put it in back into the blob image controller right the idea of serverless so compute really... is that there are no, you're not managing servers. There are no servers. There are servers, but you don't have to worry about the servers. That's the idea. So you're not ever saving state on the server because your server is always changing all the time. It's just executing some logic and then outputting stuff to wherever you want. Okay. So it sounded like um, they're trying to help you a lot with the data part, but you got to kind of buy into their system of how you orchestrate data transfer and all that. And then I assume that the blob storage you mentioned is just an added server service that you also pay for. Mm, yeah, that would be correct. Yeah. But you could yeah, you could output it thing. not to 
Azure either, right? You could output it to literally anything. Oh, yeah. sure. I understand. Yes. The, the, the world is your the oyster. The world is your you, oyster. You have a server. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just was looking for the recommended, you know, what are they expecting out of you? And it sounds like they expect a kind of wild, awesome data orchestration. Yeah. But that's cool. And here's a good example of what we do actually at um, in, in our Slack channel is we have a timer trigger, which is every five minutes or every 30 minutes goes off to Bugzilla and queries for new bugs, which is just um, mm, nice, RSS yeah. feeds. And when it finds new bugs, it does a get um, a, an output to GitHub or to Slack, I mean, and actually post a Slack message inside of um, and saying this, we have new um, bugs or whatever, so we can get notified. So this is a great segue into our next topic, which is uh, <laughs> I have been doing a bit of IoT stuff at, in my house, and I've been needing like servers like this for posting these little notifications and, you know, just sending little bits of data around the network, that kind of stuff. So I did something silly, James. I, um, I was getting worried about locking myself outside. Like you do. You know, without the keys. Like you do. Yeah. I, I worry about these things <laughs> a lot. And, um, you know, I was a little jealous of people online who could just buy new door locks for their houses that had like magic IoT stuff that magically opened when you just wished for them to open. That's that's how I understand that they work. But I live in an apartment in the city and I can't exactly do that kind of stuff. <laughs> I can't replace uh, any of the door locks. So I did something wild. I reprogrammed the little security box in no. my apartment and IoT. Oh yes. <laughs> I know that call box, by the way, because I pressed the button. You, you've seen it, huh? Seen it. You press a button, basically, right? And then you it, it rings your doorbell. Yeah, I'm going to call it 1970s technology. It's the old buzzer-at-the-door yeah. technology with, with a little speaky mic. Well, I figured I had to, I had to move it into 2017. So I got a little um, cheap little Arduino device, put it on the network. Um, oh, God. Connected it all up, rewired the security system, which is probably something I shouldn't have done. I, I asked before this, do you think my building manager listens to Let's this podcast? Hope Let's hope not. <laughs> but it was very instructive. Um, I, I uh, got to build a website for it. I um, started writing an app for it. Now Apple has finally allowed you to write HomeKit stuff by yourself without having to buy a very expensive processor or any of that. So I've started trying to make it a HomeKit product and all that kind of stuff. I don't know. I, this is this is like my form of entertainment. Have you ever done anything no, like this? No, it sounds very scary. No. Um, well, to me, there's immediately things that could possibly go wrong. What if I break the thing? What if I... We, you know, we have even in our complexes, like there's a system and has like a webcam on it. And it's like an iPad, basically, or a surface in there and people can call and it makes a phone call to you or whatnot. It's very terrible, right? It, but it seems very happy. You have a modern system, it sounds like. We'll call that the 2010, 2010 system because it's not IoT. Can you use an app yet? Can you no, use your phone? No, it calls your phone, maybe a Twilio service, but that's about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of danger in this. I highly don't recommend this to anyone. Um, but it, it was a great learning experience and just being very careful with every single kind of wire. And it was just getting out of the box from doing the normal rut kind of program. Now, I want to say that could. you're additionally a electrical engineer by trade, correct? I have a master's degree in electrical engineering. I am semi-qualified to be doing this kind of work. Was there soldering? <laughs> was there soldering that occurred? Yes. 
Uh, so what I got was this little uh, ESP8266 board. They're these very cheap little boards you can get online that are easily programmed as an Arduino. They come with a Wi-Fi chip on them, so they're super easy to use. Uh, but they don't really have much on them, so you have to solder on your own electronics. So yeah, there was a tiny bit of soldering. But yeah, every project has a little bit of soldering. That's that's how you know I don't want to touch it. I did enough soldering in in, in high school to be like, eh, I'm good. When I worked at my first company out here, I did a little uh, bit. And I was like, eh, it's not really my thing. See, I've always thought about quitting programming and just becoming a technician. I just really love building things, so I'd be happy just soldering all day. I think <laughs> slight personality a difference bit. there. Just a tiny bit maybe but you know i think you know i Any, understand that the, the 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 gentleman that i worked with early on in my career out here in seattle were very similar like they were just soldering and then they had machines where you could like do the voltage like the ins and the outs and kind of all the little intricacies yeah. <laughs> that's too much for me i don't not what i not my swag i don't know i i love having my software have a physical effect on the world so you know if, if i put a bug here the crazy door would be locking and unlocking and probably setting off alarms and things like that. So that teaches you to write good software, software that you can rely on. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, I don't know. <laughs> no one should ever yeah, do this, but it's a good practice. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, there's something probably that people also should or shouldn't do as our final funny topic besides hacking apartments, which is stuff that I do in my apartment. In fact, I'm going to do right after we record this podcast, which is enjoy a delicious, absolutely not sponsoring the podcast at all 100% plant-based soylent oh god it's plant-based sure. yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> bread makes you fat no, it's a meal replacement it i mean right it's it's things it's something i remember walking into nat's office a long time ago and he got boxes of soylent and he made me try one it was pretty much disgusting and um because it was like crowdfunded the idea of not using <laughs> crowdfunded, food. crowdfunded food, correct. Um, uh, so I'm making fun, but actually I love Soylent. I have the worst eating habits on the planet. And part of my not eating habit or bad eating habit is not eating in the morning. I just never do because I hate taking time for breakfast. And so these things have been kind of a lifesaver for me as just kind of a breakfast food. I haven't tried going on the 100% Soylent diet. That sounds terrible. But man, it's a quick breakfast. Good to go. And it feels a little weird buying into the whole Silicon Valley culture and doing this. But Ah, the taste grows yeah, on it's you. It's not too bad there. So I guess it's algae based, which is a plant, right? It's a, a thing. It's sure. um, <laughs> It's got a bunch of stuff in it. It's got some calcium and some other stuff in it, which is, is good. And it's supposed like I don't use it every day as a meal replacement. I, I am also not bought into the full I'm a soil in my entire life. But there was a good deal on Amazon where I got like a big pack of them. And I'm going to try this out. And it's 400 calories in a bottle and it definitely tastes okay. Like it's not bad at all. Like people, I think, asked me a whole bunch on Twitter, like when they saw me um, order a whole bunch of Soylent and I just got the standard flavor. The standard flavor, you know what it tastes like? It tastes... Oh boy, this... Careful, careful. This did psychological damage to me because one time I read what someone thought it tastes like and now that's what it tastes like to me. So whatever words you're about to say, just know that you have that power of implanting into people's head what it's going to taste like. Be careful, James. Yes, it tastes like... (laughs) I'm going to ignore everything you said, but (laughs) it tastes like... um, So if people are are wondering, just a normal standard uh, Soylent 2.0, 
It tastes like cereal milk, like, you know, in the bottom of cereal. And that's what I've heard it been described. <laughs> After you've eaten all the cereal, what's yeah, left? <laughs> whatever's left, which is not bad, but it's actually pretty good. I haven't tried the other coffee flavors, which you would assume that I would do. But um, I say give it a go. It tastes pretty, pretty, tastes pretty good. I don't know. Am I a weirdo? I don't know. I think it's pretty good. Well, I think it's weird because I always worry about these things just being like fads and weird things that we did to ourselves in 2017 or even earlier, you know, for some people. Um, but, you know, as far as fads go, it's a pretty good one. <laughs> like I said, I'm actually getting some breakfast now. And um, I don't think it's a total group think thing because I'm seeing a lot of people who I wouldn't have ever guessed would try some weird Silicon Valley chemical <laughs> concoction as food. <laughs> people that I don't think they would do that have tried it out and liked it. And so I, I guess I have these mixed feelings because of my um, counterculturism, but... <laughs> But yeah, I, love I mean, it. I remember, so the very first thing that I thought of when I saw these two, and I had to explain this to many people, is um, Soylent Green, which, you know. Oh, it took me forever because I, I was that person that every time someone mentioned Soylent, I'm like, you. you. I'm like, I don't know if they were making a bad joke. I don't know what they were doing. But yeah. And the worst part is, I guess this is actually a direct reference to that. They just wanted to gross people so. out and and it it must have worked and if you haven't seen soylent green i watched it once in college i, I may wa make heather watch it again because I, I keep trying to explain to her why every time i drink a soylent i go it's people um you still do it I, that goes away yeah, after a month i still do stop it. doing that i drink like one every year every year here and uh -huh. there but it's pretty much great um if you're around you want to give soylent a try um i say give it give it a go it's i don't know i feel like it's a good you know when you're just like jamming on code and kind of bringing it back to the yeah, immersion exactly. when you're just jamming on code you don't got time to make a salad you just want to go in there grab a soylent chug it down a little bit i'd actually sip it quite slowly actually um take it as good i don't know i don't know i think it's pretty good that's how we wanted to close this show is talk about soylent so we talked about soylent there you go Silly, Silly topics. Topic. You know, I went camping and it was it was all right. We did you take Soylent camping? Oh my goodness! Uh -huh. it, it <laughs> actually, what's interesting about Soylent is you can drink it cold or room temperature. It doesn't it's not really food, dude. It's just it's it's a chemical concoction in a liquid. That is form. It's just stuff in a bottle that you happen to be able to digest mostly. Usually, that's what my brain tells me. Yeah. Is, at least. <laughs> Okay, we did it. Uh, we went over on a few, but we compensated six topics, five minutes each. I feel great feel? about it. I feel that. Um, you know, we love actually answering your questions on the show too, especially lightning talks. We can really get deep into it and contradict each other and go back and forth about how tabs should never be on the bottom. But, um, you know, uh, you can always reach out to us. Uh, I'm at James Montemagno. Frank is at Proclarum on the uh, Twitters. And the show, of course, is on uh, at MergeConflict.fm. And you can, of course, find the show on all of your favorite podcasting apps in the entire world. We're on all of them. Uh, if you're using Apple Podcasts, you can go ahead and actually write a little review. We would love that. That'd be uh, amazing. And if you're using Overcast, which is a fantastic iOS application um, by Marco, uh, you can hit that little favorite button and that tells all of your other friends that you like this podcast and that they may like this podcast too. And if you like this podcast, you can always write to us by going to mergeconflict.fm, commenting on the shows, or just going on and uh, leaving us a little feedback with the contact button. Anything else, Frank? Did I miss everything? That was a long spiel. 
I, I, I do actually enjoy the tweets. Yeah, we though, love it. So keep them coming. Well, there you have it. Six <laughs> topics, five minutes each. That has been Merge Conflict episode 60. Come back next week. You guessed it for episode 61 because we usually increase by one every every week. That's usually how it, for funsies. Until we don't. That everything's a bonus episode. Well, I'm James Montemagno. And I'm Frank Krueger. Thanks for listening. <laughs>